This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, as New Zealand pilot Philip Mertens remains hostage in West Papua, we find out why its independence fighters are taking such extreme measures to bring attention to their cause. And it's Super Bowl today with star player Samoan Australian Jordan Mailata set to shine. But it's not just NFL fans who are celebrating. He's made it more achievable for young Pacific people and non Pacific people. This is a humanistic issue of inspiration, of pathways for all. And we'll be crossing live to New Zealand to find out why some Pacific Islands might make perfect places to wait out a nuclear storm. Pacific Islands, they also are good food producers, but they also have resiliency, being able to do things at a lower technological level. We'll find out exactly what those countries are later in the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, to Fiji, where the main training and referral hospital servicing not just the country but the entire Pacific region is in urgent state of disrepair. The Colonial War Memorial Hospital in Suva is more than a century old and staff say leaks in ceilings and crumbling walls make it difficult for them to care for patients to the best of their abilities. Fiji's health authorities opened up the hospital last week to journalists and ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lede Muvono, was part of the tour. Sister Pradeep Kaur remembers it clearly. The children inside the Colonial War Memorial Hospital were sleeping when suddenly the ceiling of the bottom floor caved in. This came in because the ceiling went down and like it happened after hours in the evening. It happened, yes. So that's why I'm, that's the new ceiling and this is the old one. But if, when you see it's not even, eh? some places it's coming down. So it is. It needs uh, renovation again, eh? and we really, really need our maybe other partners to come in and help us. Sister Kaur is the nurse unit manager of the children's outpatient clinic at the Colonial War Memorial Hospital. Leading the ABC through a tour of the facility, she points out at least ten leakages around the bottom floor, which houses her unit. Sent a list of what all needs to be done in infrastructure. Mm. So, looking at ceilings, looking at we need some electrical work, uh, we need some plumbing. The Colonial War Memorial Hospital served as a COVID facility during the pandemic. At the time, toilets doubled as showers and children's playpens became extra wards as Fiji's system struggled to keep up with the influx of COVID cases. Today, COVID numbers have steadied and Fiji also has a new government. It says it opened up the hospital to the media to show its true state and to reaffirm its commitment to improve the facility. On the top floor of the 100-year-old building, three dietitians supervise the preparation of more than 500 meals for both patients and staff. The dietitians work next to a crumbling wall that lets in the elements. Shobna Shalini is the senior dietitian at the Catering Services Unit. Currently, our main, uh, main uh, challenge is our HR. We need more dietitians uh, to be able to do our work properly. Number two is our infrastructure. We need see we have equipment sitting outside that we need to get installed, but we are not able to do it because our structure is not condu- conducive to it. 
Permanent Secretary for Health Dr. James Fong admits Fiji's infrastructure is struggling and skilled medical staff continue to leave the public health service. I don't have the exact numbers, but what I can say that we have a very significant outflow of uh, exodus of uh, medical professionals currently in this uh, current space. Uh, we understand that it is a global phenomenon. However, for Fiji specifically, uh, trying to reverse the outflow remains a huge challenge. And some of the immediate mitigation measures does involve increasing the cadre of non-clinical staff so that they can take on the clinical duties of uh, non-clinical duties of the uh, nurses and doctors that have gone and it allows the remaining group to focus more on their clinical uh, duties. As the government works to make pay more attractive for Fijian doctors and nurses, there is a nationwide appeal asking for help to clean up the hospital. He says he is hopeful the new government can start moving quickly to make needed repairs. There is a lot more uh, push towards uh, working, allowing us, giving us leeway to move. But not only, I mean, it's not certainly focused on the limit and the approval process. It's also focused on how we engage with uh, various other ministries and partners on uh, on repair work. Because I think it's uh, one of the, I think the, the, the thing that I've, you know, that we have, well, we've given quite a bit of a serious about is the fact that we have now the mandate to establish a more broad-based support for our work. And that's more important to us than the ceiling that any uh, government gives. It's just giving the latitude for us to be able to reach into other areas that can provide us the support to improve. And that was James Fong, a permanent secretary of health in Fiji, ending that report from Luve Muvono in Suva. Pacific Beat. The fate of a New Zealand pilot is still unknown after he was taken hostage by freedom fighters in West Papua last week. Captain Philip Mertens was captured and his plane was set alight in the remote village of Paro on Tuesday. Separatist group the West Papua National Liberation Army says he won't be released until certain demands are met. To understand more about what has led to this concerning event, we're joined now by Dr. Camelia Webb-Gannon from the University of of Wollongong. Dr. Webb Gannon, uh, welcome to Pacific Beat. Thank you for having me. Now, you've read, written a book on the independence movement in West Papua. Um, to start off with, can you tell us who exactly are this? is this group, the West Papua National Liberation Army? They're the ones who've taken this pilot hostage. Do we know more about them? Well, they're part of the independence movement, but they are a small minority. They have been active since the movement um, commenced in the mid-1960s, so when Indonesia invaded West Papua, um, trying to take the territory for its own, the West, uh, uh, um, a number of West Papuans took their um, resistance actions underground and they formed a, um, a liberation movement. Part of it was diplomatic, um, was intended to be diplomatic, part of it was um, strategic and um, part of it um, was a military. 
But what has happened over the past um, decades as the the military section of the independence movement has made very few gains. They they don't have very many weapons, they don't have very powerful weapons, and there's not a lot of them. Um, And so they haven't been able to stand up to the power of the Indonesian military very successfully. And so um, in, in the early 2000s, the military as well as the rest of the movement actually committed to achieving independence or working towards independence via peaceful means. This has obviously switched um, in the past four or five years. Mm. Yes, because the Indonesian government actually labels this group a terrorist organisation, uh, isn't it, uh, Dr. Webgannon? Is is that an accurate um, uh, label for this group? Well, I, some of the tactics that they use could be considered terrorist tactics. But what's really important to remember is that this is a very small minority of the West Papuan population who are hoping to work towards independence. And I think we have to look at their actions in context. So um, a kidnapping is absolutely never justified, but West Papuans have been subject to six decades now of a very violent regime. And this reminds me of an action that was undertaken by this um, same different leaders, but the same army in 1996 when a group of Um, researchers from Europe were kidnapped under the leadership of Kelly Qualik, one of the the former leaders of the West Papuan um, guerrilla army. And the group demanded that Indonesia recognise West Papuan independence before releasing the hostages, and they were held for five months. Mm. Now, the two Indonesians in the group were killed, but the the English and Dutch among the group were actually rescued, but not before a massive tragedy occurred in which um, negotiations had stalled. The International Committee for the Red Cross was responsible for the negotiations and they weren't making very much headway. And so it is alleged that the Indonesian military commandeered a Red Cross helicopter. It was a white helicopter. It's very similar to the one that the ICRC, if not the same one that the ICRC had used. It had um, witnesses recall seeing the emblem, the ICRC emblem on Mm. the tail. The local people, who the civilians who were living with the group who had taken the um, captives hostage had learned to trust the International Committee for the Red Cross and they would come out and greet them because the ICRC would deliver food and much-needed supplies. And so the military was in this helicopter on this particular occasion and when they um, came close to the ground and the civilians came out to meet them, they opened fire on mm. to the crowd of civilians and they had to flee what the ones who weren't killed had to flee and it was um it was it was tragic and so after what i'm what i'm concerned about is that indonesia might be um feel that it's now appropriate Mm. or you know take opportunity to do something similar in this case and so i think negotiations need to be held need to be um Um, conducted extremely carefully so that there's no disproportionate um, response by the Indonesian military Mm, in this case. Yes, because that is the allegations made from many many of these peaceful um, activists for independence in West Papua that, you know, the the whole movement is tarnished with the actions of a few Mm. um, who might take take up arms or or take such drastic measures as taking hostages. And and so it sounds like what you're saying, Dr. Webgannon, is that this has happened before and and come to quite a tragic end. Um, So is this something that that is often done by West 
Papuan, well, this group in particular, the West Papuan National Liberation Army, but even other West Papuan guerrilla fighters? No, it's not. It's not something that's been common. It, um, it is these these sorts of actions though seem to be coming. Um, you know, it, it's a sort of desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, so. This hostage action that I um, refer to from 1996 took place when there was very little hope for any kind of negotiation um, or any um, way of of the West Papuans pressuring Indonesia to recognise um, their claims. And then when um, Sahato was deposed um, in in 1998, there was a time that followed for West Papuans, which they call the Papuan Spring, where they were very hopeful that they might be able to um, become independent just like East Timor had. Mm -hmm. And so that was around the time when West Papuans had committed to this um, achieving peace by peaceful, achieving independence through peaceful means. However, it seems that in recent years, as um, hopes are flagging again for independence, because there's been, you know, several decades of non-intervention, willful non-intervention from global powers, including Australia and New Zealand. The Pacific Islands governments have been very supportive of West Papuans, but, um, but I suppose regional um kind of and and more international powerhouse governments have not been and so it looks like this is the TPMPB is the name of mm. the liberation um, guerrilla army they in at the end of 2018 killed 20 Indonesians who were working on a highway which um, it's called the Trans Papua Highway which has is being built to in, in an effort to link the coastal areas to the interior of the um, territory it's one of um, President Joko Widodo's um, develop uh, on his development agenda to um, open up the territory, and West Papuans have been extremely concerned about this because they're not the ones that benefit from these so-called development initiatives. Um, it actually just opens them up to further exploitation through the mass migration um, program. And so, the twenty Indonesians that they, that whom they killed um, on the the construction workers, the the TPMPB actually claimed that they were spies for the Indonesian army and said that they had evidence of this. It's not been confirmed, mm. but it, it seems that they're becoming increasingly outspoken about their intentions to stop further Indonesian expansion into Papua at any cost. And so this again triggered a hugely disproportionate um, counterinsurgency operation in the Highlands, exactly uh, pretty pretty much around the spot where the New Zealand pilot is captured at the moment. And since that time, with this counterinsurgency operation from the Indonesian military, at least 60,000 people have been displaced um, for the past four years and they can't return to their homes now. So um, so it's these kind of small acts of, um, you know, extreme, um, you know, tragedy that mm. the... TPN is carrying out that are being met with these heavy-handed tactics that um, are then, you know, um, also tragic for a huge portion of the West Papuan um, civilian population. Mm. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're joined by Dr. Camelia Webb-Gannon from the University of Wollongong, and we are talking about that hostage situation in West Papua with a New Zealand pilot still taken hostage. We don't know exactly what his fate will be. Um, he has been taken hostage by the West Papua National Liberation Army. And as you've been saying, Dr. Webb-Gannon, uh, I mean, it sounds like 
like I think you said the desperate times is is what the might have prompted um, this this guerrilla mm. movement to do this. Um, is that what we're seeing now? Because I asked this, you were, you were talking about the international situation. The group has put out a list of demands um, saying they will free the hostage once Australia and New Zealand act and stop funding the Indonesian military. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what, what is the significance of that? Is there something that has prompted this in particular to make this call to Australia and New Zealand? What, what role do they have to play in all of this, particularly in sure. recent times? Well, we'll start with Australia. Australia has been active in, in in training the Indonesian army and Indonesian police. Um, one of the units that Australia has been involved in training is the Densus 88 attachment. And so it's that's um, a part of the Indonesian um, police that is tasked with counterterrorism. But it's actually been deployed to West Papua in the past and has been, um, is alleged to have been involved in, um, in murders and human rights abuses in 2014. Then ADA is accused of assassinating Marco Tabuni, a leader for the Peaceful West Papua National Committee, one of the um, one of the groups working peacefully for independence in West Papua, and he was killed in broad daylight when he was just visiting a market. Mm-hmm. So it seems to um, Australia has also been involved in training um, COPASIS, the um, special forces um, detachment, to. Um, the Indonesian military, and so there appears to be very little to no oversight that the troops receiving this report, this support from Australia, um, are using that support to respect human rights. Um, and so West Papuans are extremely concerned about that. Um, Australia also is a major aid donor to Indonesia, and so um, West. Well, it appears that the the leaders of the West Papua Liberation Army are viewing them as complicit in this um, respect as well for um, aiding Indonesia to um, keep its firm its occupation of West Papua. Um, Australia also turned a blind eye to West Papua's plight when Indonesia threatened. So in in the early 1960s, when Indonesia was determined to claim West Papua as part of a territory, um, and the Dutch, who were the West Papuans' former Um, colonisers had tried to work with West Papuan independence leaders to work towards an independent state for West Papua, Indonesia threatened to go to communist powers. This is the Cold War era and they said we're going to go to um, Russia and to other communist powers to seek weapons Mm -hmm. um, to invade West Papua. And so what happened was... uh, Australia had previously supported West Papuan independence at that point, um, but they did, um, you know, an about face and said, okay, well, we're not going to, along with the United States, along Mm. um, with the United Nations and said, you know, we really are concerned that we don't want a a communist Indonesia in the region. The United States then was instrumental in brokering an agreement called the New York Agreement between Indonesia and the Netherlands, um, and this agreement essentially handed West Papua to the United Nations for um, several years before the UN then handed West Papua to Indonesia to administer. Mm. Um, Part of that agreement was that in 1969 there would be a referendum in which West Papuans could vote either for independence or for permanent annexation to West Papua, sorry, to Indonesia, and um, it was a farce. So less than 1% of the West Papuan um, Indigenous population were handpicked by Indonesia to vote and were threatened with violence if they didn't vote for um, integration with Indonesia. And so essentially um, 
the international community has since that point, since that um, referendum, which the United Nations was tasked with making sure was fair, um, which it absolutely was not, since that time, um, the international community is considered West Papua to be part of Indonesia. And so, again, this is what is prompting um, West Papuans um, you know, putting note, putting Australia and, and New Zealand again, who's been training Indonesian police in West Papua and has been, um, you know, keeping close diplomatic ties w- mm. with Indonesia. It's putting the US and um, New Zealand and Australia on on, on notice. Mm. I mean, do you expect that, um, that, because you've been explaining, Dr. Webb Gannon, that, you know, the, this has been a peaceful movement for, for much of the past few decades, um, but that mm. hasn't really been working in getting international attention. Now we have this hostage situation and other, I guess, sparks of violence. Do you expect that to continue? Do you think this group will become more violent, more extreme in its, in action, in its actions? And also more, we might see more extreme violence from the other side, from the Indonesian forces as, as a reaction as well. Um, it's hard to know. So in this particular situation, it is a hostage situation, so it's unpredictable. It's, um, you know, I think... I think there wouldn't be um, anything to gain if West Papuans, you know, um, if if the people who hold this um, pilot captive were to do anything more violent with him. Mm. I think that, you know, um, at the moment he, the, they're getting, gaining media attention and, and some degree of traction. I mean, I, the governments aren't going to, you know, the regional governments aren't going to... Um, Give in to West Pop, give in to the claims, and um, you know, show that they're bowing to um, mm. hostage takers' um, you know requests. But I, in terms of whether or not there's going to be further incidents such as these, I think this is a very opportunistic um, action. It's a case of the New Zealand pilot being in the wrong place at the wrong time in the in the Induga in the Highlands where um, this occurred. It's a site of conflict, ongoing conflict. Um, but I wouldn't be um, at all surprised if it is used as justification for um, further military, um, uh, you know, offensives, um, Indonesian military offensives in West Papua because this has been a pattern. Yes, yes, as you've been explaining. Um, and finally, I mean, the main thing here is is about trying to encourage peace in this region. What do you think the international community do not can do, not just Pacific nations, but also places like Australia and New Zealand who have been called out during this hostage um, situation? What can they do to help encourage peace in West Papua? I think become educated. Um, so there's a media blackout in in um, West Papua that Indonesia is enforcing. So they don't want, um, you know, news reports, accounts of the violence that's taking place inside West Papua to come out to the world. But West Papuans um, have been phenomenal journalists and um, and citizens through social media um, and West Papuan activists around the world have been really um, effective to seek out their stories um, and to educate other people. I think it's really time for the New Zealand and the Australian government to join other Pacific Island countries in pressuring the Indonesian government to act um, um, you know, to respect human rights in West Papua. And this is something that's been ignored when at the beginning of his um, 
of his leadership of the Australian of, of Australia, Prime Minister Albanese visited Indonesia and West Papua wasn't on his agenda at all. But it's something that the um, Australian and New Zealand governments need to address with Indonesia as a um, as a priority. Mm, yes, well, we'll see where this takes us. Um, Dr. Camelia uh, Webgannon, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thanks very much. That was Dr. Camelia Webgannon from the University of Wollongong. We were talking about that hostage situation there in West Papua with um, the West Papua National Reliberation Army taking a New Zealand pilot last week. That was Captain Philip Mertens. And I just want to say, when we talk about this, we, we talk about the context, we talk about the past situations, but obviously someone's life is is there, is taken hostage, is at risk at, at the very moment. Um, we do wish the best for, the, for his family and the negotiators, who I'm sure are hard at work to try and make sure that he is um, safely rescued and, and brought back to his loved ones. Hold the front page. Now it's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. How was your weekend? Oh, it was really good. Thanks, Bianca. Late night last night, actually, went, to, went out to a, uh, to a comedy show uh, here in Melbourne, which was, uh, yeah, which was fantastic. Uh, I can sort of hear it in your was, voice, yeah, a bit croaky. was a late one, though, but uh, a fantastic experience, that's for sure. Oh, that's good. Hopefully lots of laughs, and that's, uh, yes. Yeah, that's where the voice comes from. Yes. <laughs> um, well, some people who might not be laughing, well, it's a tragic situation in New Zealand. We just were reporting about the floods, and now thousands are now, again, without power, because storms have been battering the north coast. I believe, is this to do with Cyclone Gabrielle? Can you tell us the latest? Yeah, that's right. Well, I suppose ex, ex-tropical Cyclone uh, mm. Gabrielle, to be specific, uh, which has made landfall uh, on New Zealand's North Island. So uh, this is reported by, by the, both The Guardian and RNZ and a number, uh, number of other outlets. Um, they say most of the island is now covered by some kind of severe weather watch uh, or warning, either for wind, rain uh, or both, and, uh, and heavy rain warnings have been issued as well. So uh, in Auckland in particular, not great news. They're obviously coming off some devastating yes. floods, which we reported on a fortnight ago, and residents have been told to prepare for the worst again, with 250 millimetres of rain uh, potentially forecast to fall today. Oh so that's you know not, not, not that much less than what they got the first time. Yeah, yeah, that's very tragic. And I know the Prime Minister was um, sort of talking, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, about, the, um, about being prepared for the cyclone and the rains it'll bring, telling people that you know, to remember how they prepared for the floods the fortnight mm. ago, as you said it. And, um, but yeah, you, I remember speaking to one of the councillors there and um, we had her on the show saying just how unprepared the situation mm. was. So hopefully people uh, are better prepared this time and um, there, there won't be such um, tragic circumstances. But for some of those trying to fly in, I understand some flights have been halted as well. Yeah, bad news if you had any uh, flights booked uh, in, into or out of the area. The national carrier uh, has cancelled all domestic flights until Tuesday, uh, many international ones as well. And Fiji Airways have also cancelled a number of flights into the city, uh, while others have been delayed. And not surprisingly, schools and council services have been closed as well. So it's uh, very much a um, batten down the hatches mentality at the moment. 
Yes, yes. And as we did report um, a couple of weeks ago, in, in this area of Auckland that is prone to flooding is mm. a lot of Pacific Islanders as well, um, or in a lot of those houses near the coast. So hopefully they are faring well. Our, our thoughts and prayers with them. Um, now let's head to Fiji. Um, Grace Road's church, the, the well, some say cult um, or religious organization with a lot of ties to um, Fiji, Fiji's economy, is at the center of a new investigation from the government. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so uh, new Prime Minister Sidavani Rambuka has revealed there will be a probe uh, into the Grace Road Church organisation uh, and its dealing specifically with the Fiji First Party, the, the previous administration. So uh, this is reported by the Fiji Times, uh, who said Mr Rambuka will actually be consulting the Korean government um, to look into a number of their development applications. Uh, he wants to know if the Grace Roads is an organisation of good standing in the eyes of the Korean government, uh, and that's because the church has made more than 31 acquisitions of land uh, when Fiji First was in power, currently has several others pending uh, and has received $8.5 million in loans from the development bank. So they hold a fair bit of sway Mm. uh, in the country at the moment. They own a number of uh, restaurants, beauty salons, dental clinics, things like that. And uh, so, yeah, the new PM just wants to look at sort of how compatible, I guess, these things are with good bilateral relations and uh, and if they're compliant. Mm, And there have been concerning issues raised about Grace Roads in the in the past. I mm. said it has been called a doomsday cult, um, and I believe its its founder, the pastor, has been convicted, charged of various yeah, crimes. That's right. Yeah, a number of things. I, I can remember that the uh, yeah um, former uh, Fiji opposition members actually uh, there, there were accusations of abuse. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Its founder was actually sentenced to six years uh, in prison for child abuse mm. uh, and even assaulting church followers in Fiji. Um, that sentence was was in in Korea though. So yeah, so some pretty concerning things, I guess. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, and interesting to say, a lot of that outrage was from the opposition, the former opposition of Fiji. Now they're in power, so we'll mm-hmm. see if if they'll, um, I guess, keep to their promises they made while they were in opposition, and and see what this investigation brings. Um, now let's head to Tonga. There's been this ongoing problem with, I guess, a lot of. Um, cars in a lot of Pacific <laughs> islands, which is what happens to them when they need to be scrapped. Often they just stay in the roadside, stay on the beaches. <laughs> um, but in Tonga, they are taking new measures to dispose of these scrapped cars, thanks to Japan, I believe. So what's happening? Yeah, they, they certainly can add a bit of colour to the landscape, but not, not in <laughs> not a the best good of ways. way. Yeah. No. Um, so car compacting machines are, are going to be introduced under a, a gr- an agreement with the Japanese government. Uh, so this is reported by uh, Matangi Tonga, the other uh, local newspaper out there. And uh, they say Japan will be providing uh, the compact machines. And it comes up after a Japanese ambassador uh, visited an eight-acre field which had more than 3,000 car frames just piled up. Oh, and uh, and all up, there's an estimated 30,000 scrap cars uh, in the country altogether. 30,000. Mm. And the impact on the environment, I can imagine, must be massive with just that rusting metal sitting there. Mm. Um, so compactors to solve the problem... But I imagine they just compact the the scrap metal. What exactly do they do? How do they? Yeah. Work? So essentially, they just break down the cars so they can uh, essentially they, so they can be recycled. I'm oh. sure you've probably seen them on TVs and movies. Those big sort of metal yeah cubes, con- con- yeah devices and conveyor yeah. belts. That's right. They can sort of condense them into a coke can essentially. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of uh, valuable compounds that can actually be extracted. Things like copper, tin, um, batteries that can be sort of scrapped for export. So it has a bit of an economic impact there. And uh, and like you said. Uh, 
you know, if, if, if they're not disposed of, they can be very harmful to the environment. There's a myriad of toxic components um, sort of uh, once the paint wears off, which can leak out and, and, and damage the local area uh, once that still runs away. Yeah, very interesting. We'll see if those compactors work. Um, Kyle, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was a reporter, Kyle Evans, bringing us the latest from around the region. It's a project that's supposed to prevent deforestation. Hidden from the world. It's something that boils blood. We bought these carbon credits in good faith. Greenwashing the climate crisis. So the figures were fudged, made up. They're hot air. They're not worth the paper they're printed on. It is a form of neocolonialism. What you saw on the ground in PNG is being replicated globally. Four Corners, Tuesday, 8.15pm, PNG time. ABC Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. Coming up on the show, we'll be heading live to New Zealand to find out why a researcher has been looking at, well, what happens after a nuclear apocalypse and what countries will win out. There are a few Pacific countries in there, so do stay tuned for that. But first... In a couple of hours, the biggest sporting event in the United States, the Super Bowl, will kick off. And among its stars is 25-year-old Samoan Australian player Jordan Mailata. His unlikely path to American football came by way of rugby league in Sydney. And there's hopes more Pacific Islanders can follow his route. Kyle Evans with this report. As a junior rugby league player in Sydney's western suburbs, Daniel Hachati would breathe a sigh of relief when Jordan Mailata arrived for the match. Such was the dominance of his Samoan teammate on the football field. can't say he was um, really ever really little. Uh, <laughs> he was always a big kid, you know, and growing up he was always sort of looking up to him, both um, physically and obviously as he... As we grow about a bit older, as well in the sort of leadership, so the games where he's there, you you take so much confidence going running out onto the field with. You know, when the second he rocks up, you know it's going to be a good day. And if for whatever reason he wasn't able to make a game, then you always knew that you had to put in twenty times harder work. So um, definitely, definitely had extra confidence, and you know things were going to go well when he was on the field. To this day, Mylata has the same effect. But it's not the Bankstown Bulls who rely on him anymore. It's the Philadelphia Eagles in America's National Football League. He was drafted by the Eagles in 2018 after making the switch from Rugby League and the South Sydney Rabbitohs under-20s program. At the time, he was a project, someone with potential, but no previous gridiron experience. Now, he's an integral part of the Eagles, who will square off in Super Bowl 57 against the Kansas City Chiefs later today. I think the NFL definitely suits him in a sense where, you know, stop start, he can really put his power on show and that suits that sort of game. You know, he's very protective over his teammates and over his mates really in general. So, you know, protecting his quarterback and the team, whoever really has the ball, and that definitely suits his personality. It's that protective nature along with his immense size and strength that's made him an integral part of the team's offensive line. As the team's left tackle, Mylata protects the blind side of Star Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts, and he's been key to the Eagles' success. I got you back, baby. You gotta admit, I got your ass back. Mylata will be one of a posse of players with Pacific ties taking part in Super Bowl 57, including Samoans Isaac Siumalo, Christian Ellis and Chiefs wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. And flying the Tongan flag for the Eagles, Marlon Tuipaluto. 
But David Lakisa, who has researched Pacific athletes in sport extensively for his PhD, says Mylata's unlikely rise represents something far more significant to the Pacifica community. For Pacific people, migration and, mob- and upward mobility, it's, it's, it's nothing new. They've been doing it for centuries. What is new is the context of it. My PhD research revealed four distinctive hallmarks that highlight Pacific contribution in sport. It's one family or kinship networks, two spirituality, three culture, which embodies a lot of different things from identity to you know values and customs, and lastly service. And so those four key hallmarks is what drives the Pacific mobility. And you'll find in sport today that the global north and the global south are becoming closer and closer. What do I mean by that? I mean Pacific contribution. And so when, say, The Rock or Roman Reigns mm-hmm. achieve something or when Mark Hunt or Sonny Bill achieve something, that's not just for them. It's a collectivist culture. We all feel the upward mobility and the progress. I mean, Jordan's success is based on the collectivist nature of our culture. And so he's opened up pathways to more than just football. He's made it more achievable for young Pacific people and non-Pacific people. This is Mm. a humanistic issue of inspiration, of of pathways for all, that you can transition and navigate any space. Mylata's success could have a far-reaching impact on the game of gridiron as well. Dr. Lisa Uparesa, Senior Lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland, is the author of Gridiron Capital, a book which charts how American football has become central to Samoan communities. She says Mylata's rise could widen the Pacific pathway to the professional ranks. It is a minor miracle to have somebody like Jordan Mylata in the Super Bowl considering the pathway that he's taken. And so I think there's going to be a lot more interest in whether the international you know, player pathway is something that can recruit more people from this side of the Pacific. Uh, yeah. By the way, that's a six foot eight, 346 pound human being. And he, he ran Look a at that. Some sports commentary around Jordan Malata's performance. And before that was Dr. Lisa Uparesa, Senior Lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. That report from Kyle Evans. And in a couple of hours, I believe the Super Bowl is set to kick off where you can see Jordan's performance on show. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. I hope you're having a lovely Monday morning. A new study has found that Solomon Islands and Vanuatu are best placed to survive a nuclear apocalypse. Joining me now to find out why is the researcher behind that study, Professor Nick Wilson from the University of Otago. Good morning to you, uh, Professor Wilson. Good morning. Um, So Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, among the best places, best islands to survive a nuclear apocalypse. Why exactly is that? Well, we did a study of 38 island nations around the world to determine which would be best place to survive a nuclear war. And we found actually that Australia and New Zealand ranked the highest, but following them were uh, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. And that's because of their southern hemisphere location in the tropics, where nuclear winter effects may produce smaller impacts in terms of uh, reduced temperature. But those particular islands also have rich volcanic soils and they produce more than enough to feed themselves. In fact, they uh, both of them export uh, copra and uh, Vanuatu also exports fish and beef and there's also palm oil exports. Uh, so uh, that level of self-sufficiency 
would be critical in this type of disaster. Mm. But we also looked at a range of other factors. And uh, although things like energy self-sufficiency are not that, that high in, in these islands, because of their subsistence agriculture, they're far less dependent on imported uh, fossil fuels. So they can you know, run their agriculture without uh, complex machinery. Oh, very interesting. What do we mean when we say nuclear apocalypse, though, Professor Wilson? What, what does that mean? What impacts will it have? You said the southern hemisphere will be good in such a situation. What, what situation is that exactly? So we looked at a range of different um, scenarios, but all of them involve uh, a northern hemisphere war with burning cities that push soot up into the higher atmosphere, which can block the sun uh, in the even in the time span of five to ten years. So that would be really catastrophic, especially uh, for crop production in the nor- northern hemisphere. So it's a terrible situation where billions of people uh, could starve. But in some places, like the tropics in the southern hemisphere, that impact is less. And so although uh, island nations would uh, have some reduced sunlight, their crop production and their fisheries wouldn't be so severely harmed. So they'd be able to uh, manage. Mm. I mean, uh, this sounds like, uh, I guess, a sort of apocalypse, as you as we were calling it, nuclear apocalypse. Um, how how likely is this situation? It sounds something out of out of a science fiction movie. <laughs> Well, it would be good if it was just science fiction, but unfortunately, the geopolitical situation in the world is is fairly serious. And you know, we've seen threats to nu- use nuclear weapons associated with the Ukraine war, uh, but also the nine countries with nuclear weapons seem to be uh, both modernising their uh, weapons arsenals, but some are also um, expanding the actual overall size of their the arsenals. So. Uh, overall, it looks like the risks, even though they're quite low every year, may be increasing. And it's something that you know the world urgently needs to intensify uh, nuclear disarmament to uh, reduce this risk. Mm. Um, now, it's interesting that you found, um, as you said, countries with lower technological um, availability, countries like Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, um, and we'll come to Australia and New Zealand soon, who I also know are on the list, that they'd be the ones that fare well in a nuclear apocalypse. But I imagine powerful countries, you know, often when there's disasters, we talk about inequalities and that it's really the powerful countries with more money, more ability to create technology to support themselves that end up winning out. Why isn't it the case in in this situation? Well, technology, uh, you know, requires uh, inputs and um, often those things are imported. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in in a country like New Zealand, it is its agriculture is very efficient, but it's dependent on entirely on imported diesel, a lot of imported fertilizer, seeds, and machine parts. And the advantage a place like um, uh, Vanuatu has is that uh, a lot of that is being replaced by uh, you know, local crops that people have owned for many generations and, and their seeds. And also the, the just human power is uh, doing much of the agriculture. Um, and, and the techniques of fishing are, are often, uh, you know, 
are very dependent on local knowledge and skills and things. And so um, a lower tech society could help in this type of disaster because people are already used to uh, uh, living in a lower tech way. Yeah, very interesting. I guess that's that's um, a good point for for our listeners there on the islands. You know, sometimes we we want to welcome the technology and the globalization and and all the opening of international markets, but in in a nuclear apocalypse, at least, it's good to be um, low tech. But but I understand in your in your study, Nick, there were two a few other countries that topped the list: Australia, New Zealand, and Iceland. I believe actually fared better than Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. Why Why is that looking? Because I imagine they do have high tech and a bit more, um, you know, tapped into the global markets. Why would they? Why are they still able to survive a nuclear apocalypse? Well, their high tech uh, uh, sophistication allows them to, to be very major uh, food producers, particularly Australia. And Australia also has the advantage of uh, energy self-sufficiency and critical uh, liquid fuels. Um, and, and Iceland is also very high-tech, and it's able to uh, get a lot of uh, food from its um, large fisheries. So they're sort of special uh, factors. But uh, in terms of um, uh, the, the Pacific, there is a particular advantage there of the collective culture that mm. may be able to uh, manage such a terrible disaster uh, much better than the more, um, you know, the, the the New Zealand culture is, you know, it's got some social cohesion, but it's not as strong as, as you would see in uh, Pacific nations. So there are vulnerabilities for both Australia and New Zealand in terms of things like social cohesion, how they'd adapt to making the big shifts needed, even though they've got, uh, you know, high levels of current uh, export production of food and um, uh, a lot of fossil fuels. Mm, interesting. I guess we need a, a nuclear apocalypse to actually test test out these theories. Um, well, let's hope it doesn't quite happen. Um, but speaking of those other Pacific um, countries that, that might be more resilient, uh, as you mentioned there, um, why are only Solomon Islands and Vanuatu um, mentioned on your list? I imagine other Pacific islands also share, you know, um, community cohesion and um, low-tech, self-sufficient uh, communities as well. Actually, Indonesia and the Philippines were not far behind um, those countries. They, they're nearly self-sufficient in um, uh, smaller level uh, nuclear wars, nuclear winter scenarios. But a big problem with um, many Pacific islands is the dependence on food imports, especially uh, those which are coral atolls and don't have the sort of very rich volcanic soils that um, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu have, which allow them to uh, produce more food than they need and to actually uh, export food. So uh, it really comes down to if a, if a country is able to uh, produce a lot of food. Mm. Now, we're talking about nuclear apocalypse here, but you know, most most of the time when we talk about the Pacific and, and you know, ex- existential disasters, we're talking about climate change. And what's interesting in your study is that you're, you're saying these countries might be called on to help reboot a collapsed human civilization in, in the case of a nuclear apocalypse. But considering the impact of climate change, are we, are we sort of eroding, are we potentially destroying humanity's only hope of survival? Well, that's right. We're faced with multiple threats and we've got to address climate change 
but we also have to address the risk of nuclear war um, and other types of threats like uh, uh, new pandemics. Mm. So, yeah, the world is facing a difficult time and, um, you know, they, they, they have to actually, um, you know, countries have to work together and unfortunately have to address all, all these type of problems uh, because they're all, all uh, uh, potential threats in the future, mm. but, but particularly climate change. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I mean, Professor Wilson, consider that. Considering that, what what do you hope that comes out of your your study, looking at um, what countries fare better in a nuclear apocalypse? Well, I think there, there's a lot of areas with these catastrophes where there's win-win solutions, where things can be done to uh, address climate change, but also increase resiliency uh, for other types of. Um, disasters, you know, in, including just you know severe cyclones and so on. So if if we can shift um, electrical grids to run on renewable energy and improve housing and improve food supply uh, uh, to everyone, uh, that's going to uh, just help with uh, a wide range of disasters and catastrophes. So we need to look for those things which are, are good to do anyway, and which will also help. Uh, reduce carbon emissions. Mm, indeed, and, and I guess being self-sufficient is, is not a bad thing to to start putting in place, whether or not there's a nuclear disaster or not. Um, Professor Nick Wilson, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That was Professor Nick Wilson. Well, I do hope his study remains just a theory of, of how we'll survive a nuclear apocalypse and not a reality. Um, but he was from the University of Otago. And if you want to read that study itself on what happens and what countries can survive a nuclear apocalypse, you can uh, head to the journal, journal of Risk Analysis. You can find that online and read uh, Professor Nick Wilson's study. But with that, we are at the end of Pacific Beat for the, your Monday morning. Thank you so much for your company. As a reminder for our top stories, we headed to Fiji and looked at why its hospital is in a serious state of disrepair and people are calling for the new government to address things like uh, leaky ceilings and uh, crumbling walls. And we also heard from an expert in West Papua to find out why now the um, some elements of its independence group are taking hostages after that uh, New Zealand pilot was taken hostage just last week. I'll be back with you same time tomorrow. Please be there. Until then, have a lovely day.